Morning Chili Bible. Glad you're here this morning. You know, it's an encouragement every time I get to gather with God's people and to worship God uh, together is an encouragement to me. Uh, this past week, uh, as I was studying for this message, I realized that some of my favorite stories of all time basically have the same plot. They basically are all different themes and variations on the same story. Uh, they all tell of a people who are oppressed by a usurper king, and they live out many years of their lives waiting and hoping and praying for the return of the rightful ruler who will throw down the usurper and take back what is rightfully his and put all things back to right again. And at its most basic level, that is the story of Robin Hood and his merry men, right? You remember this? Uh, these are the guys that are hiding out in Sherwood Forest, and they are righting as many wrongs and undoing as much oppression as they can, uh, fighting against the evil Prince John until Richard the Lionheart returns, right? If you read that story, it's a it's a fantastic story. There's archery in it. It's great. Okay, true love, archery, sword fighting. It's phenomenal, right? Can't miss it. Um, that's the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe that we're about to all watch together as a church family uh, out on the lawn here uh, this week. As uh, you read the story of Aslan, who is the rightful king. Uh, the son of the emperor over the sea, but who has been away for a long time, and in his place has risen up the usurper, the white witch, who has made it always winter and never Christmas for a hundred years. And she reigns with a, with a level of cruelty that puts all good people in fear and all uh, wicked ones uh, fills their hearts with joy, right? Until Aslan comes and the white witch is killed and winter ends. It's the story of the Lord of the Rings. I love those. They take you a while to read, uh, but it is a great story about the evil Lord Sauron and his dominion over Middle-earth. And how a little band of little people wind up turning back the greatest evil the world has known through the return of the king. And when the king comes, he is crowned and he begins to rule in the white city of Minas Tirith, the city on a hill. And the white tree blooms, the white tree of the king. It's a great story, right? And I think what I love about these stories is the fact that they contain within them echoes of the, the biggest story, the gospel story. The story of a people oppressed for generation and generation by a usurper king who has no right to rule this world and who one day will be thrown down, never to rise Again. And it will happen when the king comes and takes back what belongs to him rightfully. 
And it will happen, in fact, in the passage that we're looking at today, which speaks to us of these things. This passage that we're going to look at is the hinge point of the book of Revelation. It's the center of what it's trying to emphasize, and it speaks to us in a great way about the return of the king. And so I want to... Um, I want to read it with you. And if you would stand, it's in uh, Revelation chapter 11, uh, verses 15 to 19. It's a short passage. If you're able to stand, uh, let's stand in honor of God's word as we read. The scripture says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever, and the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we long for the day that this passage describes when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Father, we pray that today would be the day when it happens. And that between today and whenever it does happen, that we would be your faithful servants. Father, help us to see what you have for us today in your word and to anticipate it and to live by it and to be filled with joy because of it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, if you remember this far back, I know it's been a, a, about two weeks, uh, but if you remember this far back, in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, John sees this mighty angel, and this angel uh, puts his one foot on the earth and one foot on the ocean, and he stands in power before God, and he raises his right hand, and he swears before God. Do you remember this? This is a great scene. And he says this, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Uh, in the day of the, seventh, of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And what we're seeing right here in this passage in chapter 11, verse 15, is that word spoken by that angel one chapter ago being fulfilled. There were seven trumpets of judgment, and this is the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And what happens at the blowing of the seventh trumpet is what the angels say the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now, when I read those words in my head, 
I hear Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. Okay, I'm not going to play it for you today. We've actually done that in a worship service before, uh, but I won't do it for you today. But in my head, I'm hearing, and he shall reign forever and ever, right? And I'm hearing it. And why? Because these are those words. These are those words. And they are coming true in this scripture. And, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. I love the fact that Handel has the choir repeat that forever and ever and ever and ever. He will reign. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. There are things in here you need to not miss in this verse. First, you, you might not notice this. I mentioned this before, but you might not notice this unless you're paying very careful attention to the structure of the book. But this, this verse is the hinge point of the entire book of Revelation. It is, the, it is the, uh, the pivot on which the entire book turns. Everything leading up to the, everything before this leads up to it, and everything after it explains how it happened. Uh, if you want to be technical with it, you could say that the book of Revelation has a chiastic structure. Uh, and what that means is it, it makes a shape like half of the Greek letter X, which is called chi. Okay, and it goes like this. And it, or if you want to be a little simpler, you can say that the thing that it wants to emphasize is right smack in the middle, like a sandwich. So you know, with a good sandwich, you've got bread, and then you've got lettuce, and you've got tomato. If you got, uh, and then on this side, maybe you've got mayonnaise, and you've got bacon, and then you've got the the centerpiece meat right in the middle, right? Anybody else hungry right now? I'm a little hungry, right? Um, but you put the thing you want to highlight right in the middle. And the way this book is written, this is what John wants us to make sure we don't miss. This is the message of the book right here in the middle. That God is bringing a kingdom that it is going to happen. In fact, uh, there's a couple different ways you can you can talk in the past tense in Greek as as this our English Bibles are translated from a Greek original, and and one of the ways you can talk about it is in a tense that refers to completed action in the past. And uh, this one, though, is talking about a future event in the past tense, as if it's a completed action that's already taken place. And I'm not going to, there's no test on this, but, but, the, uh, but the term for that is what's called a proleptic aorist. Now, you don't need to know that, but you do need to know this, that what it means is, is that it speaks of a future event that is so certain to happen from God's perspective, it is as if it has already occurred. In other words, you can take this to the bank. We're speaking about it in the past tense, even though it remains future, because it is certain to happen. 
There is nothing that's going to stand in the way of this happening. When we pray, God's kingdom come. You know, if you grew up praying the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. That prayer will be answered. When? In the blowing of the seventh trumpet. It will mark the culmination of a long-awaited arrival of the King. The King is coming. And it is so certain to happen, we can speak about it as if it already did. And you need to check also, pay attention to what kind of kingdom comes. It is, first of all, it is the kingdom of this world that becomes the kingdom of our Lord. What's the kingdom of this world? The kingdom of this world is uh, the world as it exists right now. From God's perspective, even though there are 190 countries in the world and very few of them are monarchies, uh, from God's perspective, there are only ever two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world that is ruled by Satan. And there is the kingdom that he will establish, which is ruled by him and by his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. And those two kingdoms are in opposition to one another. And God allows the kingdom of this world to exist because He is saving a people out of it. Amen? He is getting the ark ready before the flood water falls. And when the last person whom He is going to save goes in, then the flood water falls. And judgment comes. And the kingdom of this world is swallowed up. And its ruler thrown down. And Christ and God the Father reign forever and ever afterward. And we're going to see that unfold in the chapters to come. Which, it's, uh, beginning chapter 12, it kind of flashes back. And you see what's going on, in a sense, from Satan's perspective while all of the things that we've been reading about from God's perspective have been happening. While the two witnesses are doing their thing, Satan has his two witnesses. His two prophets, if you will. His political ruler and his religious ruler that also arise. And we'll see them beginning next week. But, but it is God who will rule. And He will rule through His Son. And the kingdom will have come. And the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience will be defeated. Fully, finally, completely. Now look at verses seven, uh, 16 and, uh, through 18 with me. Uh, what you see in verses 16 through 18 is a snapshot of heavenly worship led by the 24 elders. Now, uh, lots of things in Revelation are symbolic, but the numbers are uh, meant to tell you things. If you remember back to the Old Testament, how many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. All right. How many apostles did Jesus appoint? Twelve. Okay, you add them together, and history major math is shaky, but I, I think that that's 24, right? 
and and you add them together because there is in heaven one people of God comprising people from the Old Testament and the New Testament, one group of people who is anticipating the Messiah coming, one group looking back on the fact that he has come, together they form the unitary people of God in heaven. And so the 24 elders are the representatives, if you will, of this much larger group of all of the multitude of the people of God who, uh, whose spirits are with the Lord in heaven at this time. And they all fall down on their faces before God and they give Him honor in worship. And you ought to see, in case you haven't, be careful to notice the details here. Notice the posture of worship. When they see these things happen, what do they do? They fall on their face. Now, I'm not advocating that we all need to lay on the ground when we come to church on Sunday, all right? It's not a terrible idea, but, uh, but the, the attitude that is reflected in the action is what is really important. And the attitude is one of humility and one of awe at what God has done. You know, sometimes as believers, we can run the risk of thinking that we and God are more or less peers. Right? Because God is our friend and He is our Father and well, Christ in the family of God is in some sense our brother, right? And we can kind of get familiar with God and that's not a terrible thing, but we do need to remember that He is still God. That He is still God and we are not. Amen? In fact, those are the two fundamental rules to a successful life, that there is a God and you are not Him. And, and they bow before God in worship and give Him praise. They take the posture of worship. And then, having done so, they, you want to also notice the content of their worship. They praise God not only for what He has done, but also for who He is. I love it when we sing songs like, like Cornerstone that, that focus on, what, on who God is. On who He is as well as what He does, right? We're grateful for all the things that God does for us. It is to our... In, enormous, everlasting blessing that God has done for us as much as He has. Amen? But at the same time, who He is is worthy of praise uh, quite apart from what He's done for us. And they praise Him both for who He is and what He does. And what do they praise Him for? We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. The one who not only exists, but the one who always has. The one who has all power. The one who is the almighty God. And you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Y'all ever watch Bugs Bunny cartoons? 
Like I, I used to love Foghorn Leghorn, right? Foghorn Leghorn, his, his great nemesis was that dog. You remember? And he and the dog would get into it, and Foghorn was fairly smart, and he would figure out exactly how far the dog could get to the end of his rope, right? And he'd mark a line, and then he'd go and whoop on the dog and then, like, race for that line to get across it, right? And, uh, and in some ways... I don't mean this to be irreverent in any way, but in some ways, Satan is like that dog in that he can only go to the end of his chain. And when God is done letting him have chain, that'll be the end. And there'll be nothing Satan can do about it because the two of them are not peers. This isn't Star Wars where you have good side and the bad, the dark side and they're equally powerful. No, no. God in His goodness far outstrips Satan in His power. It's not even a close race. Far outstrips Him in His power. And, and God, when He begins to reign... Let's see what he does. Verse 18 says, The nations raged. That ought to remind you of Psalm 2, which is a psalm about the Messiah when he comes. The nations raged. The nations, meaning all of the wicked people of the world, fought against God and what he was doing. And nevertheless, what happened? God's wrath came. And when it came, it brought with it the time for the dead to be judged. The dead are the term in Scripture for the unbelieving. We who are believers are asleep when we die. The dead are those who are really dead. Um, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name. Okay? Okay both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You want to see this, that what God does when His reign begins is two very important things. He deals with the wicked, and He rewards those who follow. And he rewards them whatever category they fit in. If we're talking all of his servants. So, you know, if you look at the passage, you see you see servants, prophets, saints, those who fear your name. The great and the small. Prophets would be among the great. Amen. Uh, saints, everybody else. And they'd be among the small, the obscure, the ones who's, who no one knows their name, but are nevertheless counted among the servants of God. If you want to know who the small in the passage are, look around the room with you. <laughs> right? All of us, uh, me, you, uh, your neighbor, uh, your wife, your, your child, whoever, okay, who is a follower of Jesus, we're among the obscure. 
I met some guys when I was in Africa one time. There was a brother I met that he will have a place among the great. I'm not sure, um, you know, I'll probably be like his janitor or something at his house. But, um, but this brother would walk through the African bush. And just to give you an idea, getting to his house required leaving the paved road and driving through the bush until the two-track runs out, and then you're almost to his house. And then he would walk through the jungle to all these little villages, and he would plant churches. And he had a dozen churches that he had planted. He was a circuit, not a circuit rider, a circuit walker. And in a 50-mile circuit, he had planted 12 churches. And he's like, I've raised up three pastors to take on the oldest three of these that I planted, and I'm going to give those to them, and then I'm going to go further out and start three more. I thought, son, right? This is this will be a guy who will be among the great, Pastor Casa, over in Mozambique. The rest of us, though, too, will also get our reward. We will get our reward. In fact, you get a little bit of it mentioned in verse 19. Look at verse 19 again with me. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple, and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Now, you all remember when Moses went up on the mountain and God's presence descended on Mount Sinai, what you saw? Lightning, thunder, rumblings, all this stuff, right? And only Moses could go up on the mountain all by himself to meet with God. And when he was up there, he saw uh, all of the articles of the tabernacle uh, that he built were copies of the things that he saw of God's heavenly temple. And one of the things that he built was called the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember this? It was, a, it was if you've seen Raiders, uh, they've got a pretty good re representation of it with uh, Indiana Jones there, right? And uh, it was a golden, it was a gold-covered box, a wooden box covered in gold, uh, and then with a solid gold lid that went on top of it. And inside the box, you had uh, the tablet, the original stone tablets written on by the finger of God that Moses broke at the foot of the mountain when he came down and saw them worshiping the golden. And inside the box was also Aaron's staff that budded when there was a rebellion against his priesthood. And then inside the box also was the pot of manna because manna was what God told them he would give them the next day and they, in, in unbelief, did not believe God's word and they went out and they looked on the ground, they saw the bread from heaven and they said, what is it? And it was given its name, manna. What is it? Um... And they put all these things inside the box because they were all symbols of sin. And every year on Yom Kippur, which just, just happened a few weeks ago, they would, the high priest would go in one time a year because it was the only time a year he was allowed to go in to the presence of God where this thing served in a sense as God's footstool. A place where his spirit rested in visible presence above the temple and the tabernacle. And the priest would take the blood of sacrifice, and it was a fearful thing to go in there. 
they had bells around the hem of the robe so that people outside could know he was still alive in there as an unholy man coming into the presence of holy God. And he would take that blood and pour it across the lid of the ark. And the idea was is that, is that the sin of the people was covered by the blood of the Lamb. But the ark disappears sometime around the prophecy of Jeremiah. In fact, I just read this in Jeremiah this week where Jeremiah is, is prophesying to Israel about the fact that there is no ark of the covenant anymore. It's probably been taken by Jeremiah's day by the uh, Egyptian pharaoh Shishak uh, when uh, he came in uh, through, up through Israel uh, king Josiah, the last good king of Israel, went to war with him and Shishak killed him. And then came back into Israel, took over the city of Jerusalem and installed his own puppet king and left. And probably took some of the treasures of the temple, including the ark, with him when he departed. But the ark was missing by Jeremiah's day. And here John sees it. He sees it not just because he is in heaven and the one on earth was a copy of the thing in heaven, but because of what God is trying to tell him and try to tell us, that what this symbolized. Because the ark was, again, its, its function was to serve, in a sense, as God's footstool, the symbol of his presence with, with his people. It was the thing in God's throne room. And the idea is, is that John, when the kingdom comes, is able to enter into God's own presence. Men and women, guess what? When the kingdom comes, you and I will be able to enter into where God's own presence dwells. And it will not be a fearful thing as it was in the Old Testament. It will not be the kind of thing where you, 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 you say to somebody, I'm going to put some bells on the bottom of my pants. And, um, you know, if you hear the bells quit ringing, you know the Lord struck, struck me dead in there. It won't be a fearful thing. You know why? Because the blood of the Lamb has covered over our sin. And now we have access directly to the throne room of God. And it is a joyful thing, a glorious thing, a beautiful thing. And all of God's massive power, His unlimited omnipotence will be deployed not to judge us, but to heal us and to protect us. You know how I know? I read the end of the book. <laughs> we'll get there. In chapter 21, chapter 22, you'll see all of God's power is deployed in service of protecting and healing His people. That's part of the reward that we get. Now, at this point, as we wrap up our time in God's Word, I want to encourage you to focus uh, on the fact that since the kingdom is coming, and since the Lord is bringing reward with Him, 
Think about your life and what kind of reward you might anticipate when God's kingdom comes. The Bible speaks of rewards consistently. And Jesus, most vividly of all, he, he tells a number of parables that include a description of rewards. Uh, he talks about faithful servants who invest wisely and who are given the rule over cities as a result. He talks about uh, a wise, uh, wise virgins who store up resources in preparation for the groom's arrival, no matter how long it may take for him to arrive. He talks about being a good servant who is about the, ma the master's business and treats his fellow servants well, uh, of being a sheep rather than a goat, and so on. And it's not that the Christian life is a competition, amen, between you and your fellow believers. Like, there's a limited number of slices of pie, and you better sure, be sure to get yours ahead of the greedy people, right? Um, this is not the way that the Scripture speaks of it at all. Yeah, but it is given to us as a constant additional encouragement to live your life in such a way, Paul says, compares the Christian life to a race, and he says, run in such a way as you might win. Amen? And there's a, this emphasis on this idea of, look, it's the, the primary reason that we serve and follow the Lord is because we love Him because He first loved us. Amen? But in addition to that, there are also rewards awaiting the faithful. And again, I don't want to be irreverent, but think about it like this. Uh, my boys often work with me. They'll work out in the yard or we'll be doing some project in the garage or I'll have them painting or whatever. And they do not get paid for so doing. Why? Because they're part of the family and because we love each other, we serve together, right? But on some days that we have had uh, a, a day where we have had a lot of hard work and we've, we've done some projects together and it's been a long time uh, since we've done it the last time, you know what we do? At the end of the day, we go to Dairy Queen, right? We pull into Dairy Queen and we get one of those giant chocolate cones dipped in something, right? The boy's like dipped in butterscotch. I'm, I'm personally a chocolate dipped in chocolate guy. Right. And I love that. Right. It's been a while since I've had any ice cream. But but in any case, or I want to get like the biggest blizzard that they will sell me. Right. And I want them to turn it upside down so I can enjoy the glory of that thick ice cream right before it goes in my mouth. And it is phenomenal. Right. You weren't hungry about sandwich time. You're hungry now. Um, <laughs> but in any case, uh, and why do we do that? It isn't because it isn't because I have to. I'm their dad. They live with me. I feed them. I take care of all of their bills. Um, they do not need paid. Amen. Um, what they need every now and then is some encouragement that there are rewards along the way, <laughs> and they need Dairy Queen, right? We stopped and got some yesterday. It was great. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and in a sense, that's what these things are about. Also for us. 
that we, we need to serve the Lord. We need to walk with Him. We need to be faithful. We need to persevere. We need to uh, serve and use our spiritual gifts. We need to pursue holiness uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need to reach our neighbors and we need to do all these things because we love Jesus. And there are also great and glorious rewards awaiting you if you do. And it's better than Dairy Queen. Some of you are thinking, I don't know. I think Dairy Queen sounds pretty good right now. But there, trust me when I say this, there are things better than that awaiting you. Chapter 2 and 3 of this book outline seven different rewards given to those who overcome. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about, um, talks about building on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones rather than wood, hay, and stone. If you want to do a little study on this stuff on your own, I've put it together for you in, uh, in the study notes for this message this week. Now, I should have got them in your email. If not, there are paper copies out in the hall. But in any case, uh, you can look forward to these kinds of things. And they are given to all of God's servants, the prophets, the saints, that's y'all, um, both great and small, both the well-known, the Jonas and Pauls and Peters uh, and uh, Charlie Spurgeons and so forth of the world and insignificant and obscure like us. And you want to live your life in such a way as to gain reward. Amen? You want to live your life in such a way as to gain reward. When I was in high school, my dad used to teach the youth uh, group that I was involved in, met at our, our house every week. And every week, me and 50 of my closest friends would pile in, and Mom would feed us cookies, and Dad would teach us the Bible. And it was great. It really was. Um, I could wish that time on anybody. And uh, and one of the things Dad would say repeatedly to us is this. He says, you know, your Christian life is like this. It's like you have two warehouses in heaven. Uh, one labeled blessing, things you get to enjoy now. And one labeled reward, things that you will get to enjoy in eternity. And ideally, if you live your life faithfully before God, the one marked blessing will be empty and the one marked reward will be full. Amen? I want to I live my life before the Lord in such a way that every blessing He wanted to give me came to me from His hands. And every reward that could have been mine is something I receive. I want to enjoy that. I want y'all to enjoy both now and for eternity. Amen? So that's going to mean um, that we take seriously what Jesus says to lay your life down. To sacrifice all things, to count all things, as Paul says, I consider all things loss that I might gain Christ. All things to the here in the here and now for Christ and His kingdom. 
and the there and then. It means I live my life now in radical fashion, being wildly obedient to His calling on my life, laying my life, my fortune, my sacred honor at Jesus' feet. And living life for Him. Because all... We, and, we, and we have to do this daily. This isn't a one-time thing, you know, that you got excited at a revival meeting and you go, I give it all to you, Jesus, because what I find out is, is that every morning I want to snatch it back. And so every day I have to get up and I have to lay my life before the Lord, including all that I am, all that my desires are, all that, my, all that I might otherwise have done instead that's sometimes a temptation too, right? I wish I had done this instead of this. But every day for a lifetime, you do that. And then one day, the trumpet blows and the king comes. And the kingdom of this world comes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and His reward is with Him. If you come Wednesday night and you watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with us, I dare you to watch that scene at the end when the four kids stand before the king and get crowns and not cry. I dare you. I'll do it if you do it. All right? Because I cry every time. Because I'm imagining that scene when I stand before the Lord. And He gives me a new name and a crown. It's great. And that is what is awaiting you and awaiting me if we're faithful to follow the King until He comes. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that the King is coming. We're so certain of it, we can speak of it in the past tense. The King has come. The King has come and He entered into Jerusalem triumphant and then was put to death and crowned with thorns but rose again and is coming again. Not in weakness, but in glory. Not in humility, but in power. Not as the, su the suffering servant, but as the reigning king. Father, help us to live for the coming of the king. And if it comes down to, to it and we wind up living in Sherwood Forest for a while and hiding from the evil usurper and his henchmen, Father, help us to be brave until, the, until our lion-hearted king arrives. Help us to faithfully serve regardless of the cost, regardless of the loss of our reputation, regardless of the loss of income, regardless of what we might otherwise have done, regardless of what we desire to do with our bodies. Let us be faithful to follow the king who is coming. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.